A report details the clergy sex abuse scandal in Illinois, how several thousand children were abused and church leaders covered it up for decades. It is my sincere hope that this report will shine light on those who violated their positions of power and trust. That's coming up on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon. I'm Lauren Warnicke in for John Norton. On today's show, Senator Dick Durbin says nothing is off the table when it comes to Supreme Court ethics. And there are basic standards of uh, uh, integrity that people expect in a courtroom. Illinois lawmakers return to Springfield with little time to pass a budget. And a social justice tour of Bloomington goes virtual. I think it empowers people to say there are multiple strands to the quilt we call Bloomington Normal. All that after a Bloomington Normal News update. This is WGLT's Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Bill McKay. They're all doctors of audiology, knowing that they've got the background to do a, a, a complete evaluation and not just sell hearing aids. It's they make that connection for you. Bill's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. campus of Illinois State University in Normal. This is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm Lauren Warnicke, in for John Norton. A multi-year investigation by the Illinois Attorney General details how the Catholic Church failed to report hundreds of clergy members who committed sexual abuse. The State Attorney General identified nearly 2,000 children who were harmed over seven decades. The report identifies four priests who committed child sexual abuse while working in McLean County, as well as four others who worked in McLean County but were accused of victimizing children while working elsewhere sometime in their career. More from Cameron Cutinello. Illinois' investigation began in late 2018 with a review of documents from all of the state's six Catholic dioceses. Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul said the list of alleged abusers included more than 450 priests and other clergy members. He says before the investigation, the church had only reported 103. It is my sincere hope that this report will shine light on those who violated their positions of power and trust to abuse innocent children and on the men in church leadership who covered up that abuse. This Illinois investigation is one of several across the country that was sparked in part by an investigation of Catholic priests in Pennsylvania five years ago. Raul says it was a lengthy process with more than 600 survivors and family members interviewed. Helen Rainforth from Central Illinois was one of them. She says members of her church threatened to sue her when she first reported a case of abuse involving a relative in 1997. After that, she spoke with lawyers, police, and has even traveled to Rome for help. But she said this report is the first time she's felt validation for the survivors. I have worked with so many people that have been harmed that the most important thing that they're told is, we believe you. I, we, we totally believe what you're saying. What this report did was not only affirm the belief, it proved, it proved the truth. Chicago's Archbishop Blaise Supich apologized in a statement to anyone harmed and called the abuse repugnant. He added the church began overhauling its policies in 1992 and cooperated with the state's investigation. No cleric with even one substantiated allegation of sexual abuse of a minor against him is currently serving in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Illinois Attorney General Raul says 330 of the accused clergy have died 
and the statute of limitations prevented any prosecution in many of the cases. Part of the report included a number of recommendations, including how to handle any future child sexual abuse allegations at Illinois Catholic churches. I'm Cameron Coutinillo. The Peoria Diocese issued a statement saying that it has, quote, implemented significant changes that have made the church safer for children. You can read the full statement and more on this story at WGLT.org. U.S. Senator Dick Durbin got a brief break from the turmoil in Washington as he met with city officials in Bloomington to discuss several projects, including the Connect Transit Transfer Center, the downtown streetscape, and stormwater improvements. Durbin spoke with WGLT's Eric Stock. Well, it's a good time to have a project because we have a president who has a, a bipartisan infrastructure plan, which is really bringing more money back to our communities for key uh, infrastructure that will serve the economy, uh, and a number of projects that uh, are trying to return federal dollars back home. Uh, Senator Duckworth and I, along with our congressional delegation, that's a high priority. We meet as a delegation at least once a month to compare notes on things that we're working on. We've had good luck. Uh, As you can tell, some of it is related to public health. The sewer situation certainly is, and some of it to economic development and improvements in lifestyle. Uh, and standard of living for the people living in the community. But uh, it was great to meet with the mayor and to have a briefing on his priorities. There's some exciting opportunities. Going to Washington, have you seen any progress in the last 24 hours regarding the debt ceiling? No, and I'm getting nervous. Uh, really close to J- uh, June 1st, and that was my fear, is that uh, there would be a faltering uh, in the process and we would bump up against the deadline. If we're making progress, I'm convinced that they'll do short-term emergency extensions. We're up against it. June 1st is a deadline, and it takes the House of Representatives three days to consider a measure of this magnitude. Uh, I might be grudging them, but it's all the more reason to get it done quickly. Uh, If we get perilously close to the June 1st deadline without relief, it's going to have an impact. Uh, not the least of which will be on people around the world that trust the United States has the strongest economy and the most reliable currency. That will come into question if this uh, strategy that the Speaker of the House is pushing uh, has a bad ending. I think we're going to reach a good ending, uh, probably not to the satisfaction of anybody, but at least get this behind us for two years. Should President Biden consider the 14th Amendment and just plow through this and say U.S. debts must be paid? Well, I don't know that that will work because it will surely be uh, challenged in court, and that takes time, days, maybe even weeks, and we don't have that kind of time. And it raises a question around the world is how the United States, which is supposed to be a leader in the world, can come so perilously close to a catastrophe like this. And it would be damaging to not just business community and the stock market and investments and retirement funds and 401ks. It just leaves a bad taste in people's mouth about our economy, and it shouldn't have happened this way. Speaking of the courts, should you subpoena any of the Supreme Court justices over their unwillingness to testify before the committee regarding ethics? We haven't taken anything off the table. What we're trying to do is to appeal to Harlan Crow, who has been the... uh, gift giver and uh, benefactor to at least one Supreme Court justice uh, for more information so we can understand uh, the lavish gifts that he's given over a period of decades to this one Supreme Court justice. I don't think that's unreasonable. I think if we're going to restore the reputation and integrity of the Supreme Court, 
uh, we need transparency and disclosure. Uh, unfortunately, Justice Thomas has not disclosed as required by law, uh, and I'm hope we were hoping that, that Mr. Crow would. Uh, we're going to keep pursuing this. With separation of powers, will there be any enforcement mechanism, or would the justice just say, this is how we do things, and this is how we want to do it? 1978, we passed a uh, ethics bill, uh, which the Supreme Court has been living with, uh, for better or worse, since then. That's a long period of time. We recently passed a bill that said if a judge is involved in a case where they are dealing with a corporation that they personally own stock in, they have to disclose it. They said they would live by that. So to argue that there's no connection between what we pass in law and how the courts operate is just not true, and it shouldn't be. I mean, there are basic standards of uh, uh, integrity that people expect in a courtroom. They don't expect a judge to own stock in one of the companies that's in court on at one of the tables and rule in, in their favor and against the other side. It just it defies any concept of justice for that to take place. We look to do away with the blue slip requirement that allows home state senators to block judicial nominees that uh, they find fault with. I support the blue slip, but I'll tell you, it takes bipartisan cooperation for it to work. During the four years of Donald Trump, 120 blue slips were requested by Democratic senators, which means they were willing to sit down at the table, even with the Trump administration, and to negotiate uh, filling vacancies and judgeships. I did it here in Illinois. We did not have any vacancies at the end of the day. We worked it out. So we need the same level of cooperation from Republicans under the Biden presidency. And if you don't see that? Well, I'm not going to jump ahead of time. I think uh, I was on the phone today in the car coming up here from Bloomington with two Republican senators talking about judges in their home state. So the conversation's going on, and I'm hoping it'll be a positive one. A new poll out today shows six in 10 Americans have concerns about President Biden's mental fitness. How concerned are you about that as he would potentially be, as he would be 86 years old at the end of a second term? Does that leave him uniquely vulnerable in his reelection bid? I don't know if he's uniquely vulnerable. I think different people have different strengths at times in their life. I will just tell you this. I have observed uh, President Biden up close. Uh, I've dealt with him in negotiating directly. We've had lengthy conversations. I haven't seen any deficit in his ability to govern this country. Uh, I support his reelection. I think he has a positive record. Uh, and I think that that is what America is looking for the years to come. That was U.S. Senator Dick Durbin speaking with WGLT's Eric Stock. Coming up on Sound Ideas tomorrow, there's a big gender gap at Illinois State University and many colleges and universities across the country. Women outnumber men by a lot. We'll explore the reasons why on tomorrow's show. Illinois lawmakers have returned to Springfield after missing their self-imposed deadline for the spring legislative session. Capitol reporter Alex Degman speaks with Mary Dixon from Chicago Public Media about what lawmakers have done so far and what comes next. What's the holdup? Why has the legislative session been extended? They thought that they could get all their business done by May 19th, but that just didn't happen because there are still too many things that are still up in the air about next year's budget. Um, Both of the state's forecasting arms, the main budgeting ones, they don't think the state's going to make as much money as initially thought. Another program that they didn't think was going to cost 
as much as it is, and that is a Medicaid-style health care program for undocumented immigrants. Um, that is expected to cost about a billion dollars more next fiscal year than it did this year. And they're trying to figure out how to pay for that or at least move things around to make room for things. So while leaders are working on those issues behind closed doors, we do know that lawmakers approved a lot of bills this session. What were some of the more interesting ones? There are a lot of them. So we'll start with gender neutral multi-occupancy bathrooms. This All this says is if you're a business and you want to create a multi-occupancy gender neutral bathroom, here are the parameters that you have to follow. And the thing that created the controversy about this measure was that people misunderstood it. They thought that this was a mandate that businesses had to create these restrooms or they had to retrofit existing restrooms to become uh, gender neutral multi-occupancy. But that's not the case. Another thing they did was full day kindergarten. By 2027, uh, school districts statewide have to figure out how to offer a full day kindergarten program. But that doesn't mean that districts can only offer that. The bill also allows them to offer a part-time kindergarten as well. There was a bill that brings gun manufacturers in line with state consumer protection laws for deceptive marketing. So this uh, measure that passed doesn't allow them to market to illegal militias or children. There were several bills, Alex, that stalled this session. But as we know, in Springfield, nothing ever really dies. Can you tell us about some of, of those stalled bills? Yeah, there was a bill that would potentially help the Bears move from Soldier Field to Arlington Heights. Uh, this is something that was introduced uh, a early in May, and it's going to be taken up over the summer, probably reintroduced in the fall. The idea is to give the Bears some tax certainty around uh, the Arlington International Racecourse uh, site, essentially. And then there were a couple of sweeping measures that deal with firearms and cannabis that are going to need some more work, but they could also be talked about later this week. Uh, for firearms, the main part of this omnibus bill would uh, look at things like uh, someone who's the subject of an, of an order of protection. Right now, the way it is, if they have firearms and they're the subject of that order of protection, they have to relinquish their firearms to somebody else with a FOID card. But that could theoretically be somebody in the same household. So lawmakers said, well, we think you need to relinquish it to law enforcement. Mm. And then the cannabis bill has nearly 20 things, things like uh, more space for craft growers to have in their uh, grow facilities. And then another one would be to let uh, dispensaries have drive through operations. So what happens next, especially with the budget? Well, there's a couple of hard deadlines that are coming up. The first one is uh, May 31st. That is the date that they really are trying to hit because after May 31st, it takes more votes to pass anything. So right now they need 60 votes to pass a budget after, and starting June 1st, they're going to need 71. They're going to want to hit that. And they, they do have the incentive to do that. But then June 30th is the one that they need to hit uh, constitutionally because the fiscal year starts on July 1st. That was State House reporter Alex Degman with Chicago Public Media's Mary Dixon. Late this afternoon, Governor J.B. Pritzker and the legislative leaders announced a budget agreement. It still requires a vote from lawmakers. Well, a long-running walking tour highlighting social justice movements in downtown and West Bloomington is now available online. McLean County Museum of History has created a new digital version of its popular social justice walking tour, developed in partnership with the Bloomington Normal chapter of Not In Our Town. 
The website points out key locations where historical events related to gender and racial equality, organized labor, and other social causes took place. Bill Kemp is the librarian for McLean County Museum of History. Kemp says the tour tells stories likely to resonate with both locals and out-of-towners. The story we tell here is certainly the story of Bloomington Normal, but it's also the story of central Illinois, Illinois, the Midwest, and also the United States. Kemp and community activist and historian Mike Matika give live versions of the tour. Matika says the social justice walking tour illuminates the diversity of Bloomington Normal. I think it empowers people to say there are multiple strands to the quilt we call Bloomington Normal. The new interactive social justice walking tour website allows people to access the tour anytime, anywhere. It was created with funds from Under Our Wing, a local grant program administered by Bloomington-based Business Builders Marketing. Illinois Humanities Council and Healing Illinois provided additional funding. I took a walk and talk with Matika and Kemp to visit a few of the sites on the tour, starting with Dr. Herman Schroeder's Opera House. So we're in the 200 block of North Main Street, looking east, opposite the old courthouse. And what was here in the um, most of the mid-19th century is Dr. Herman Schroeder's Opera House. And when we say doctor, this guy made up lots of stuff about himself. He came to Bloomington and set up a medical practice, which did not go well. But he was a good farmer and he started selling vegetables and then developed grape stock and was selling grape for wine to Germans all over the Midwest and became very prosperous. So across the street here, he built an opera house. So this is not that building, correct? Correct. This is one of many um, 1990s brick facades that are part of downtown Bloomington, sadly because of fires that have destroyed original structures. Um, Schroeder was an, an atheist, and he loved to be provocative. And so one of the things he did was bring in people who would stir the audience. Frederick Douglass was here on more than one occasion and spoke. Um, Victoria Woodhull, who was an early self-declared female candidate for president, came here. Victoria believed in free love and women choosing their own partners and, and basically a proto-feminist. And um, she was scheduled at a different venue in town and they were like, we cannot let this lady in. Well, Dr. Schroeder's like, well, I want to bring her in because he always liked to kind of just put things on edge. And Bill will fill us in here on, on another very famous event. Folks often think that um the battle for suffrage begins and ends in some ways with passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, which gives women across the United States the constitutional right uh, to vote, right, the franchise. But in Illinois, things are quite uh, more complex and more interesting. Uh, women obviously were fighting for the right to vote uh, throughout the 19th century, and we see that in Bloomington. Uh, the state of Illinois is established in, in, in 1818, and the first state constitution only uh, uh, allows white males to vote. Uh, by 1870, in the third constitution, 
black males are given the franchise or the right to vote, but still women are excluded clearly. That same year in 1870 of the third Illinois state constitution, a debate is held at Schroeder's Opera House between Edwin Hewitt, a professor at Illinois State Normal University, soon to become president of the university, and Susan B. Anthony, the leading suffragist in the United States at the time, and there to debate whether women should have the right to vote. Two years later, again at the same opera house, the Illinois Women's Suffrage Association, uh, a statewide group of suffragists, meets at the opera house, uh, and again, Susan B. Anthony is there to give one of the addresses. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Lauren Warnicky. Next up on my social justice walking tour through downtown Bloomington with Bill Kemp and Mike Matika, we stop on the northwest corner of Museum Square. Here's Matika. So here at the corner of Center and Jefferson, we'd like to point out the Illinois House, this large building which was with a mansard roof, which was once Bloomington's premier hotel. Before the Illinois House was here, there was another hotel called the Ashley House. Frederick Douglass stayed there. The Fisk Jubilee Singers from Fisk College in Nashville stayed there. So it was integrated. In the 1920s and 1930s, when people like Cab Calloway and Duke Ellington are coming to town to perform, they can't stay at a hotel in town. They have to sleep on somebody's couch. So the question to ask is, what happened? Um, why were African-American folks able to stay in the nicest hotel in the 19th century, but not the 20th? The Illinois House folks cannot go in there to lodge. The downtown department stores, African-Americans can shop, but they can't try on clothes. And they can't return them. They have to buy without having tried them on. Downtown restaurants, people of color have to go to the back door to get carry out because they can't come in and sit down in the restaurant. So in a sense that, that struggle to achieve equality after the Civil War um, gives African-Americans real standing in this community. And then by the 1910s, 1920s, they're second-class citizens. And their children who they help go to Illinois State Normal University to become teachers can't be hired in the local school districts. So there's a brain drain as these talented young people now have to go to large urban areas to get teaching jobs because they can't get one in their hometown. So this idea that human rights always go upward, it's, it's wonderful that it's true, but we can't always presume that's gonna happen. The Social Justice Walking Tour is available live, on request, and online. You can navigate to the site from mchistory.org. Thank you for choosing WGLT's Sound Ideas, made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm Lauren Warnicke. The show was produced by Samantha Hill. You can find all our Sound Ideas interviews and stories at WGLT.org. Or subscribe to Sound Ideas on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or the NPR app. This is 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR Network. Mm-hmm.